This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time. And one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how, through craft, that idea is made manifest. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Peter Orner, author of Maggie Brown and Others. I think what frustrates people sometimes about my work is often there isn't an answer or something solved. People die, I guess that's an answer. We'll be back with Peter Orner after these essential words. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents eight plus years of dedication and perseverance for producing this show. In addition to conversations that go into depth about a writer's work and obsessions, this show and every interview it features aims to embody the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I invite you to join me in this journey as a First Draft patron which gives you access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Plus, when you donate to First Draft, you are joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. With your donation, you are saying yes to continuing the space of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection that each show reaches to achieve. You are the scaffolding that holds up this platform that shares the insights and challenges of the writing life. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. And let's be honest, there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense in hard costs and labor to make. Don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is indeed a labor of love, but there is an incredible amount of labor involved, time and effort, planning and schedule wrangling across time zones, from Colorado to New York to London to Tel Aviv to Auckland and back again. And it all adds up to the creation of this show and the archive, which has more than 300 episodes you can dive into. 
I put so much care and effort into this show, and I hope you can tell with every episode. The process begins when I select a book, contact the author, schedule the interview. Then I read the book, take notes, conduct research, have the conversation, and edit the show. This takes equipment, organization, more late nights than you can imagine, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. And there is no staff. I am the show from start to finish. I know you may not be in front of a computer right now, so why not write a note on your hand or set the alarm on your phone to remind yourself to donate to First Draft when you get home? Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned at the end of this show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment, and on to the show. My guest today is Peter Orner, author of fiction and nonfiction books. His most recent book is a short story collection called Maggie Brown and Others. This episode was taped live at Aspen Words Autumn Words Writers Conference and Literary Festival, where Orner was teaching a fiction workshop. This episode was recorded in front of a live audience. Thanks to Aspen Words for hosting First Draft, a dialogue on writing for this live interview event. Thank you so much for coming to this interview with Peter Orner. I'm, I'm really appreciative. My name is Mitzi Rapkin. I host a podcast called First Draft, a dialogue on writing, which is in partnership with LitHub. I read a book every week and interview the author about craft. It's been eight and a half years, and I think Peter is my 350 ninth interview and it is his third time appearing on the show and Peter is a two-time recipient of the Pushcart Prize and the author of previous books including the novel Love and Shame and Love and the collection Esther Stories, a finalist for the Penn Hemingway Award. His memoir Am I Alone Here was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. His fiction has appeared in The Atlantic, The Paris Review, Tin House, and Granta and has been anthologized in the Best American Short Stories. The recipient of the Rome Prize, a Guggenheim Fellowship, and a Fulbright to Namibia, Orner holds the Dartmouth Professor of English and Creative Writing at Dartmouth College. Thank you for being here, Peter. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> I really appreciate everybody coming after, after already a long week of a lot of talk about writing. So um, <laughs> you're brave, <laughs> very brave. So I guess I wanted to start off by asking you, with Maggie Brown and others, something I sense in your stories and in your other stories I've read to before is the sense of nostalgia paired alongside kind of the ineffable. I don't know if that makes sense to you, but you, your characters are often n nostalgic for the past, or many of your stories might, might have a jump forward in time where you see where they're taking place in childhood, and you're also in these moments that might be prosaic, but somehow become sacred and, and ineffable. Does that make sense to you, and, and what, would, what do you have to say about that? It makes sense. I, I'm finding myself increasingly inarticulate. Not just because of this week, but because of, and I talked about this with my, my workshop this week, is sometimes it's very hard to talk about this stuff, as you know, 
right? And so, yes, am I chasing something? Oftentimes are my characters chasing something that, um, you know, grasping at something from the past and, and inventing off of that? You know, I think memory is invention in large measure. And so I think I'm often trying to put myself in the shoes of whatever character I'm working on and wondering what nags at them and what nags at you. What, 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 what image from the past, what vision from the past are you still chasing? <laughs> you know, and so I, I feel like that's often w- what I'm after, but I, it feels like an articulate articulation of it but I but I hope it's not actually do you think it's in fiction it's important for them to catch that for me you know I mean this is fiction is that's what's so scary about it and you know that we talk about this a lot this week is that every every move you make there's a counter move and then a counter move and a count you know the possibilities are infinite and they often freeze people up you know freeze me up the possibilities get they become a kind of weight. And is it important for your character to solve their problems? I mean, so much about fiction is exploring the feeling and not the end, the end result maybe isn't as important. And I'm wondering about for, for your characters and for maybe advice for fiction. Yes. Yeah, ne- the end result is never what I'm after <laughs> ever. It's an old trope of fiction writers. And we all, you know, we always like, okay, let's talk about Chekhov now. But, um, but, you know, I think about him a lot. And, and one of the things I often think about is how his stories do not end. You know, and they don't end. There's a, after that final period, there's a kind of um, free fall that, that goes on if they're good. And, you know, most of us are pretty good. <laughs> and so that's the goal is to, is to have you not reach an end point that, that, that hopefully the story will continue to nag at you bother you upset you something usually you know usually it's that it's that i think what frustrates people sometimes about my work is often there isn't an answer or a something solved people die i guess that's an answer yeah there's a lot of death a friend of mine told me that i needed to you know <laughs> let <laughs> think, people think live. of life yeah <laughs> Um, well, as you said in, in, in one of your stories that, you know, for people, silence is really hard. That if you, I think it was in Maggie Brown, that if, if you, if people offer you the opportunity to not speak, you just can't do it. And I'm wondering if that for you is in some way similar to writing. Like if you didn't, like writing is a form of speech and what would it be like for you? Eventually, something would have to come out. There's so much that comes to mind <laughs> there, you know, and just the idea of silence. Because I, I think um, I'm fascinated by the writers that I look to that that have been able to create silence on the page. You know, I think of Juan Rulfo, who we've talked about this week in my workshop, the great Mexican short story writer and novelist, who um, was largely silent. You know the Mexican reading public and the whole Latin America and across the world, people were waiting for the next book. You know, his silence spoke very loudly. Isaac Babel, also one of my heroes, talks about silence and, and, and writing as being sort of, there's a commonality. So I, I think, it, you know, some, one of the reasons my stories tend to be short is because I don't want to talk too much. I think with brevity, it's harder 
to write. It's, it's, I think for most writers, the compression can be the hardest part. So how do you, I mean, I know it's a mysterious process and it's really hard to find words for that, but how do you do that? How do you get compression in these stories and do they start out a lot longer? I wish I could say my, my, um, my mentor, um, was Andre Debuse, great short story writer, uh, who has, there's an anecdote where a story called waiting, beautiful story, um, seven pages. And, uh, he always says, he always said, passed away in 1999. Um, can't believe it's been 20 years. He said that, uh, waiting, um, was 90 pages and then he whittled down to seven. I love that. If I have a seven page story, it's cause I had to squeeze life out seven pages. I'm not, I'm usually not, you know, it depends on the story, right? And I definitely am a cutter, but um, I'm, I'm usually not working with a whole lot more than is there, at least in words. And that I think is the key is that I, there's some, there's more out there, but that's not text. It's something else, I guess is, you know, is that. Yeah. So when you're writing, are you a very slow, meticulous writer where all these things will come into your head and then you get down the words you want to get down? It's so erratic. I mean, I'm erratic. You know, sometimes, you know, I think Adrian was talking about binge writing the other day, and I, I'm definitely that. <laughs> and I'm also the person who's there every day trying to do something. You know, it just depends. It's just, it never, so, so it's work, and I'm always working, but you know, whether or not something's going to carry forward is always sort of dependent on the story in front of me and whether or not it has that kind of motion, you know? Um, so I, I, everyone's different. I can't, it's weird. I mean, I, I said this the other day, I, I write by hand and, and I think that has a lot to do with also the brevity of my stories. My hand gets, my hand hurts, starts to hurt, but I write, I write by hand and I dig, it's, it's a weird, I don't recommend this at all, but like I dig into the paper and it's like, it's kind of physical. And so, you know, I'm just kind of seeing where that goes, but I, I it sounds uh, very woo woo what I'm saying. Like I'm just waiting for the pen to take me, but in a sense, um, I am kind of, being patient enough to think that the story eventually will emerge if I hang in there in the vision enough. Yeah. I mean, something that's really been interesting to me a lot lately is our physical awareness, our somatic knowledge and that connection to our brain. And so I'm curious for you, you say you dig into the paper, what your bodily experience is as a writer if you feel anything in your body or your body has the answer to things before your brain <laughs> never thought about it <laughs> I, I physically it's hurting my back hurt you know like there's that like it's sitting you know I try standing and I do a lot of I do a lot of work walking around you know the note with a notebook and and a lot of ideas come that way and but there are moments uh, it sounds weird to say but I I can feel bodily if the ending of a story works. I mean, especially if I've been working on it and working on it and working on it, and it's still there's like a, a small stab, I, I think probably maybe a reader might feel something. Maybe not what I felt, but I, I, think, I think there is a physical aspect to this. I mean, I'm sure everybody in the room feels when, when you've hit something that, you, you know, maybe there, there is a, a reaction that is, you know, beyond your brain. 
Yeah, it's. I mean, it's interesting because I've been thinking about this a lot myself lately. And when I was talking to Chang Ray Lee about it, he said when he alighted on something, he shakes. Like he he just shakes. He he feels that in his body and. Some the neurology of how we're wired sometimes it's our body is reacting to things first and sending it to our brain. So I'm eager to hear next time when we chat, like h- how maybe this has has alighted for you. Yeah, it's just an interesting thing to think about. Yeah. You know, just in terms of you know whether you can gauge where you're at with a sentence <laughs> by how it feels bodily. But I, I, there's got to be something to that. Sometimes it frustrates me the way we talk about stories literature and poems and whatever in an analytical way and we forget that this is a physical experience and if something you know but but then how do you say that you end up sounding kind of ridiculous like you know but if something moves you it moves you <laughs> period and it doesn't we just came up in my class today in the workshop today like imper- imperfection in a piece absolutely can lead to a physical reaction and there's there's the story it may not be a perfect story. Do you have a imperfect story in here that you, or an imperfect moment that led to a story that you really liked? Um, yeah, definitely. Probably, probably most. Yeah. Do you want to talk about one of them? Uh, I was, yeah, uh, sure. Um, there's a novella in here at the end, um, called Walt Kaplan is Broke. And uh, it's about a character who's recurred. I've, I've, in almost everything I've done, this character, Walt Kaplan, who's based on my grandfather, his name is Fred Kaplan. Not much, not much fictionalizing there. Uh, and the reason he wasn't called Fred Kaplan is because there's a Fred Kaplan out there. And my editor's like, you know what? It's been everybody confused with that writer of Fred Kaplan. So I, then Walt, but that was very helpful. He became more fictional, right? He died, my grandfather died at 59 when I was nine. So I didn't really know him. And I think my whole life, my whole writing life, and before that, I've been trying to imagine this man who I kind of put out as being like the ordinary hero of my family, the decent guy that nobody gave any credit to. And when he died, there was a famous, in my family, famous line where, you know, somebody came up to my brother who was 14 at the time and said to him, well, you know, Fred was a good man. He was not a striver. <laughs> and, you know, I'm Jewish. In our subculture, <laughs> being not a striver, that's a, that's a dig, right? He was a good man. Nice guy, Fred, but wasn't much of a success in his life. And uh, I think that, I think that dr- has driven everything I've written about this particular character and then his wife, um, Sarah, mm. Um, who is more of a striver, I suppose. Um, and these characters have recurred. So the, the novella at the end of the book is, is them again. It's basically a rewrite of a, of, a, of a novella that appears in my first book. It's called Fall River Marriage. It's basically this, it's, it's the same story again, differently. Nobody's noticed that because who would? But you know what I mean? It's that. So I've been trying to get them right, these, these two people right for a long time. And the, just to, am I... It, the, the, there's a, the funeral of Fred, uh, the, funeral, the funeral of Walt, that moment, um, I wanted to get right this time. And uh, uh, the, the, the novella carries through his life and her life, but ultimately, you know, I think it's his story, 
in general. Anyway, but what happens when he's out? He's gone. And I could not figure out an angle of how to tell that. The problem to me was Sarah was too close to it. I couldn't see it. It was too emotional, right? You know, and my grandmother, just all of it's sort of based on real life and then interpretation from a nine-year-old, right? My grandmother never mentioned him. She lived 20 years later. She lived 20 years more, never mentioned his name. And I've always tried to interpret that as not being like she forgot about him, but I think the grief was such that she couldn't talk about it. Anyway, the, the way I got into the funeral scene was not through that character, not through the wife, but through the best friend. His name's Alf Delinsky. He's kind of a slob. <laughs> Even Walt made fun of him, <laughs> you know? Uh, and and I, the angle of having figuring out that if I could get his angle, and he's not really a point of view character in the story until very, very late. And that... Um, uh, allowed me to tell the, the you know, the Walt's demise. Because he was gone. The main character was gone. <laughs> and so they talk about him. Mm. That story is incredibly voice-driven. I mean, so much of your work is voice-driven. And I was thinking, as I was driving here, like, what does that mean? Like, how do you, what is, how do you define voice? Is it the language? Is it the cadence? It's, it's a very funny story. You fold in that human pain with, with the laughter. Uh, how would you describe voice, and does that make sense to you when I say that? Yeah, I mean, you, you said cadence. Yeah, that's such a beautiful word <laughs> to describe what we do. Andre Debuse, again, he named his daughter Cadence. You know, it was such an important word to him. Um, so I think that's a lot of it, is how someone's individual cadence you know, how you capture a voice may have more to do with that than anything else, I think. And that is different for everybody, you know. Um, you, can, you can stereotype certain groups, you, can, you know, but you, if your individual character doesn't have his, his or her, their own cadence, it, it doesn't, it can't carry off. And so I had to calibrate in that case, like, all right, how does, Walt, how does Alf not Walt. How does Alf see this? I was wondering, because it is so voicey and also very Jewy, which <laughs> we can talk about because, you know, <laughs> I can be overdone. I, right? I grew up in that Jewy world, too, um, <laughs> that I was wondering if, if there's almost like a historical epigenetic DNA voice that you're hearing. I wish I could believe that. <laughs> right? But it's a creation. You know, I, the characters in th the last part of this book are really like a, an attempt at my part to hear voices that I haven't heard since 1979. <laughs> right? And so, you know, if I had a tape recorder then, this is not how they would talk. It's, a, it's, a, it's an interpretation. You know, one of my heroes is Bernard Malamud, you know, who, who you could say is a Jewy writer, right? But, but people don't talk the way Malamud has them talk. They don't. They don't. It's an interpretation. It's a, it's a construct. It's almost like reversed. It's like people think they talk that way because of writers like Malamud, I think. You know what I mean? And so I think I was sort of trying to challenge, but I think it has to do more with cadence than actually even word choice, you know? So I think... 
Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. Does that make any sense? Yeah. It probably doesn't because it doesn't make any sense to me. I, no. I think it makes sense. I think sometimes our subconscious, maybe it's getting too wooey. Like y- you did hear a certain kind of banter in your household and in your family yes. that must come out. And it, this idea of you sort of chasing the right story and chasing something seems to be like something that you're, you're working out. I mean, uh, something that struck me too from most of these stories, and then I'll come back to this one, is that many, many, many of your characters are, are teenagers um, and, and young, and that feeds into that ineffability and the nostalgia and something you're trying to, to grasp. And yeah, I just that's something I noticed. Yeah, I mean, it goes back to your original question. You know, like what, I mean, you know, and I think. I think at this point in my life, I've sort of given up trying to be everything to, you know, like, and I, I'm always trying to reinvent and, you know, like got a new book coming out that's hopefully different than anything I've done before, but I'm sort of admitting to myself that what I'm after is what you said, which is this sort of like trying to hold on to, to some vision that, that, again, from the point of view of the character, it's not you know, sometimes it's based on me and other times it's not. Usually I usually ping pong back sometimes very personal and then you know i'm always making a point to, all right you know you're a fiction writer look at that other person what are they trying to trying to get a hold of do you think there's a certain juiciness um either for you or or for writers of fiction when you you're capturing teenage characters yeah by all i mean right you know even i mean i would go a slightly younger seventh grade pinpoint it right there right all the things that are going on you know and I, I i mean i can relive it right now michael zamost saying you know for some reason he would call me renro which is my name backwards and for some reason this bothered me so much and he knew it and so he would keep saying it and he'd go renro renro and it was it was just my name backwards what was my problem but i was like like terrorized by this He's actually the reunion coordinator. Are you going? He's not, I shouldn't say, well, (laughs) Michael, love you, man. (laughs) There are some philosophies out there that you are, no matter what age you go, and I think it's that you get stuck at a certain age in, in your life. Like, you might be in your I don't know how old you are in your early 50s. I know how you old. You were 30, the same 32. age. <laughs> um, but maybe there's part of you that will always be stuck in seventh grade. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Yeah, in my case, I mean, that's, that's it. I mean, this is becoming therapy, but it was tough. My parents were getting divorced. It was a hard time. We had to move. My dad stayed in the house, you know. I mean, I've been reliving this constantly. I had this image, my, you know, when we moved out of my house that I grew up in, um, my, my mother had this VW convertible. <laughs> and, like, she just, like, um, she packed up what she could because my dad was at work, and it was a secret that we were leaving. It was like we were, we were evacuees. We were only going a mile away. <laughs> but it was, like, it was the most exciting thing. It was like the Beverly Hillbillies. We had all our stuff. It was flying, right? And, you know, there was a cat in my mom's lap and driving. And then here's the thing, is like, that's an invention. I was at school. <laughs> I was at school. 
I wasn't there when we moved out of that house. But my image is, is we were all together evacuating our house. And, you know, and that's in the book. I mean, that's in three books, I think. Like that image of us. I don't know what that has to do with anything. But you know what I mean? It's just like these things that you carry from a certain time in your life that, that may or may not. I mean, that's why I'm a fiction writer. You know, it, that's, that was fiction. My mother and my brother both have told me numerous times that didn't happen. <laughs> so, but it can happen in your. It was books. a school day. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Um, one of the things when you're talking about the dialogue of the cadence in in um, in your novella is dialogue can be really hard for writers to write, and in your dialogue nobody answers one another which is common it's often how we talk we go off on a tirade and someone's like did you see my spoon um and so i'm curious about the experience of writing that yeah i mean it's it's good advice you know i mean in dialogue just it's a bit you know this elemental writerly advice is that people don't actually speak to one another and when you have dialogue where people are actually talking be careful because that might be your own invention which could work potentially um but generally speaking people are are already speaking in their mind even now right you're asking a question i'm like what am i gonna say right and you know that's you know i mean with you it's actually more like talking (laughs) but generally i think we're always jumping the gun and so it's you know there isn't the communication is elsewhere and so Dialogue, you know, the killer is dialogue is information. We know this, right? Yeah, or dialogue is character. Yeah. But but I do think dialogue feeds into character and how people, you know, a lot of the interactions in the, the novella especially have are carried by those interactions. People are engaging with one another. They're, they're just not speaking, answering each other's questions. Yeah, I mean, they're still in the same space. I wrote, page 220, this is one of my notes. Walt can't experience anything without commentary. <laughs> Equals Jewy. Right, right, right. I mean, there's a... <laughs> I mean, and, you know, and again, you know, Walt is not a success. And, and, and that was a weight on him, you know. But, but it's true that he was constantly analyzing in my mind when I was creating this character, but even cases like you know his wife wants to have sex and he's like anticipating that and like she falls asleep because he's too busy like thinking about how great it's going to be and what they're going to do and I mean so easy it was such an easy one but it it felt right it felt like you can ruminate your way to not having sex with your wife and have because she's got to get up early well and you also write in that story anticipation is better than the real thing isn't it yeah it's hard to capture that in fiction you got to be patient. I mean, we talked a lot about this. If you rush it, it's like that. What's that catch up? You know? Yeah. The Heinz yeah. <laughs> anticipation. <laughs> yes. With Carly Simon, I think. Yes. Uh, another line in there that I really liked, you wrote, nothing is free, even when, when what you think you've already got. And it seemed like a very profound moment. And I just wanted to ask you if you remember writing this, uh, how, what you think about it now. You know, I... It's all a blur, but you know, if a line works, I, I think I, I, I think the trick is to know to when to leave it alone, and also a line that can overcome too. Like a, that's that line threatens to, doesn't it? I mean, I even hear it, and I'm like, well, wait, what's the context there? Is that a little too much? You know, I hope it works in the context I'm trying to remember, <laughs> but but 
you know, I don't quite remember thinking that. Yeah, I think it it definitely had to do with just maybe Walt ruminating on his life because he works for his brother-in-law, great name, Irv Pincus. (laughs) Right. Um, And he's kind of, he's beholden to him because of his lack of success. He, his life in some way is not his own anymore. Right. And that was the, that's what kind of killed him in a way, you know, that, that he couldn't even have that. And this is, this is based on the truth. My grandfather, you know, is, I mean, this is what I know about him is that what killed him was, was losing his own business. He lost his own business and he had to work for his brother-in-law. He had to work for his brother-in-law who he didn't like, (laughs) but who was giving him a handout and that's how it worked in that family, right? You didn't leave people, let people, you know, it was about, it was about, it was about Sally. It was about, you know, my grandmother, save Sally, don't lose the house. So I was very much thinking about what it would have been like to have to go to work for somebody who, you know, who was doing you a favor. Mm. How do your parents react to these stories and your brother? (laughs) It's funny. My dad passed away a few years ago. He was a big reader. Um, I, I, he takes it very hard in my work, very hard. I, in my, I, have a new, I have a new book coming out, and the first line is, um, uh, my father disinherited me, and when, what's the line? <laughs> my father disinherited me. When I tell people my father disinherited me, they always look at me like somebody died. <laughs> somebody did die, my dad. Anyway, it goes on from there. And it's talk about, then it goes on to switch to talking about an Amy Clampett poem. It's a very random book. But, um, you know, my father, I, I killed him when he was alive in a book. And uh, in Brooks Brothers, where he spent a lot of time. <laughs> he, I, have my grand, my, I have my own father. It was, it was a cruel thing to do. I couldn't help it. And my father thought it was funny. And so I appreciated that. He, he understood the, the great thing about him. It wasn't a whole lot. <laughs> the great thing about him was that he, he understood what fiction was. He understood what I did. You know, he knew that I was using him, the details of his life. Guy who, you know, every day went to work on the South Street in Chicago and drove home and that was it, 50 years. Um, he understood that I was using him and he, he, he asked me to stop, but he understood that it, he understood that I'd created fiction out of him. It gets trickier with my mom. Um, you know, I think my mom, like, she, like, buys the books. She tells her friends to buy the books. And I think she's like, honey, you're great. You're great. And then she puts it on the shelf. <laughs> and I think that's good. Uh, my brother, <laughs> whole another story. <laughs> too long to get into, but we're very, very close. Very close. And I think too close for fiction, you know. But my brother is certainly always in my work. And actually, my brother, of all the people in my whole life, is the best storyteller I know. Um, and everything I learn about this started with my brother and his, his ability to invent. And I always say this, but, you know, I would, I would be at the kitchen table, small kitchen table. We were always kind of stuffed in there, um, which was way too close. But my brother would make up stories, and I'd say, like, it didn't happen. It didn't happen. And he'd kick me under the table. And, he'd say, and that was my first lesson in fiction, right? You know, do not let the truth get in the way of the story. My brother, that was what he taught me to this day. So he's constantly, he never quite tells the truth. Mm. It's weird. 
He's a, he's a cartoonist. His cartoon is The Mostly Unfabulous Social Life of Ethan Green, which is an early, it's one of the first uh, gay comics to be nationally syndicated. Uh, he has a new book coming out about Barney Frank. So catch it. Yeah. Now that your dad is gone, would you write about him? Uh, yeah, I still do. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm mine. You know, I, I, my fictional universe can be expansive and then I can circle back home. You yeah. know, I've, I, I like to do that. I, uh, one of the books that, you know, the hardest thing that I think I've done is a book about Namibia, which took me 12 years because it wasn't my people. It wasn't my place and I had to make it so. And so I like to toggle back and forth between, you know, places that, that aren't truly mine to places that are. And I, I just, one thing I'd say about that is the place you think, you know, is yours is also alien territory. Like, what makes me think I know these Jews, right? I, I, you know, it's they're, they're, these are inventions, and I can I can I can walk the walk because I because I have the demographic. But does that mean I can do it? I'm not sure. Yeah, um, I always thought it would be like the one thing that would be hard. Well, there's a lot of things with your parents probably reading your fiction when they're still alive. But there's a lot of sex in your books. Is that, um, has that ever come up? That. With my parents? Yeah. Because <laughs> then you're getting into real Freud territory. Yeah, no, I, well, there is a, there's a story in, in here about my parents' honeymoon. They were in Miami Beach, um, and, uh, yeah, I was trying to imagine them happy. I mean, they were, I mean, it was just totally mismatched, totally mismatched, right? But at one point they weren't, and I, you know they were so young. The photographs, the pictures that I have of my parents—they were in their early twenties. I mean, it's nuts. Who were who were they thinking? That they, and then they create me and my brother. Like what crazy irresponsibility? But of course, that's what we do. And certainly, if you have you know I had kids in my forties, and that was irresponsible too. Like what was I thinking? <laughs> you know. But but in this uh, story about Miami Beach, this is kind of a famous story about my parents is they, they met like a movie star. They met Ruth Roman, who was, a, who was a fairly famous movie star back in her day, in the 50s, very famous actually. Ruth Roman fans, anybody? She was on Fantasy Island when I was growing up. It was very exciting. But anyway, they meet, they meet Ruth Roman and that, like there was something so sexy about meeting this movie star and she kind of took a liking to my young parents and you know, I, I got maybe into like what happens at night territory there. I didn't want to. Sometimes the page leads you. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And sex and death, right? I mean, right? Yeah. I wish we had more time, but um, my every episode of my podcast, we do a few things at the end, and we're going to do that here today, which is um, if you could read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer, and then tell us why. I kind of went off script slightly, but that's okay, right? Oh, yeah. This is Shirley Hazard, great, beautiful writer. Um, and I was just reading her today, and I, I love Shirley Hazard. It's a book I've read before. Uh, it's called The Evening of the Holiday. I, was, I, I wanted to read a book I could finish. You know, sometimes I start a book and I don't finish it lately uh, for whatever reason. I have a four-year-old. Maybe that's it. And uh, uh, so I'm rereading this book, and there's a moment in, in Evening of the Holiday that um, I just, I like that ha Hazard kind of isn't afraid to spell things out. And this is a moment of actually, of happiness between two characters. And 
and it circles back around to, and I didn't really think about this, but this book was influential to me in thinking about the novella because ultimately what the novella in, in Maggie Brown is, is a happy marriage. It's, it's a truly happy marriage. These are people who genuinely love each other. They love being together, which is not often what you read in fiction. And so I, I, I think I was, you know, thinking about this, or at least somewhere in my brain was embedded in this moment. This is not a book that ends necessarily happily in my recollection. I haven't finished the reread. But these are two people who um, have been circling around each other for a long time, you know, weeks and maybe even months falling in love from afar and now they finally you know driven to Florence and you know this is the after this is the day after so they're in that moment and we've all been there I'm sure where you are so in love that all you want to do is talk about how in love you are and all you can do is talk to that person about it and you the two of you do not get bored (laughs) so or they spoke about themselves confirming to one another that they were together. I was afraid you wouldn't be at the station. I thought you wouldn't come. So it seems that one must believe in miracles after all. Not the miracles of the church, but of the railway station. Just think, there must be miracles at the railway station every day. They had reached Florence in the afternoon, crossed the river, and found a place for the car near the cathedral. They went to lunch in a nearby restaurant where, because of the lateness of the hour, they were almost alone, and where, because of their happiness, no one seemed to reproach them. When they came out of the restaurant, the city was reviving from the afternoon closing. They walked about the streets with their arms linked, he on the road and she on the narrow path. Almost everything they said was irrelevant. (laughs) And then Hazard has a choice to make there. She, She could just leave it. But then she gives the irrelevant lines. They talk about the Brutaleski door, you know, the, um, the doors on the Brutaleski dome, things that, you know, tourists would talk about in Florence. And it's a truly wonderful, um, you know, two people connecting, which, uh, you know, we often aren't writing about, but maybe we should. Yeah. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. Um. Sure, and I, I think I'll circle back around to that funeral scene because that—that's what's been on my mind. Um, and this, I—it was took forever. Um, and this is, I'll, yeah, you'll see. So this is Bethel, the character Walt has died, and this is the funeral. It's called Bethel, which is the temple. Um, it's chapter twenty-eight. Milt Feldman ambles over and rests a small hairy paw on Alf Dolinsky's shoulder. One man's demise brings a little swing to another step. For a moment, Alf looks at Milt's hand and considers taking a bite out of it. (laughs) Not a striver, Milt says. No, he wasn't a striver, but as good as any man who ever wore a suit. Look at this hoard. You'd think the rabbi was handing out cash. I just saw Hildegard, you know the meter maid, the one with the crooked face? Crash your car in a phone pole. Your head bleeding, she'd give you a ticket for blocking the intersection. You know her? She's decked out in black, wet eyes on that crone. I'm not kidding. The meter maid's name is Hildegard? You can call the bitch whatever you want. I parked all the way on Robeson. Had, she, had I known she'd... Oh, but I guess we shouldn't be too surprised. I mean, if ever a man... At two? What? 
You also, Milt. I mean, you also. You parked on Robeson also? The beatification. The man's been dead six minutes, and even Broomhilda, the meter maid, goes on. So, Do you want to share why my, that? Yeah. Just why that was so hard? I just, it was hard to figure out. The section before that is actually a, uh, a, a death certificate the actual death certificate and I, I used an actual death certificate and filled it in which was weirdly emotional to fill in fiction a fictional character into a real death certificate and so then he was gone and then again I had to, I had to get there and so I just, I just wanted to figure out you know how to handle having a character who I've killed off before <laughs> but, I, but I was grieving and what it was like to you know, kind of be an outsider. So in, in a way, I was sort of channeling Alf and being Alf, you know, and trying to be, you know, and you know how we, you're at a funeral and you can tell who's really grieving and who isn't, and then you are judgmental because you're the real griever, right? And, and, you know, what position, so then what does that make you? Because you're thinking about that, right? And so I think, you know, it comes from uh, Death of Ivan Ilyich, Tolstoy. It's how he starts that book. And I'm certainly riffing off that, but um, this idea of being like the, the the mourner in chief, talk about Julie, you know, like I think Alf was trying to was was declaring himself the mourner in chief. He was better than the rabbi. He's better than everybody in the temple. He's so good and so loyal to his friend that he will not go to the funeral because he doesn't want to participate in this. So he stands outside in the corner smoking a cigarette. Where do you write? I write in an old railroad hotel in um, White River, Vermont, called the Coolidge Hotel, which I just learned the other day is not named after Vermont native son Calvin Coolidge, but after his father for some reason. Anyway, it's kind of haunted. And during the pandemic, um, it was just me in this hotel. (laughs) It was weird. Mm. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I don't. I mean, that's what sucks. I mean, truly, <laughs> truly, I can't, I wish, I wish. <laughs> but, you know, not in saying I'm, I'm not saying I'm doing anything, but it's never, I, I never quite take a break, which is bad. That inner voice. Yeah, like an idea, listen, you know, it's just, sometimes you just want to be like, shut up already. But There's drugs for that. True, and that's about the only thing that works. <laughs> um, who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I, I keep it close for a long, long time. And then um, this came up the other day. I have, I have some really close reader uh, friends uh, who are poets. Um, Vivi Francis, who I can, one of the greatest, one of the best poets in working in America today, who happens to be a colleague of mine. Um, uh, Vivi will always tell me the truth. Uh, and uh, uh, Nick Regicourt, also a poet um, that I went to grad school with. And, and, you know, I, I trust these people because they are, um, they're not, they don't do what I do. And I feel like their angle is helpful because they're, they're people who work in the line. <laughs> and so they can, and Vivi especially can, can really tell me if I'm, if I'm, if I'm kidding myself or bullshitting myself and she'll cut that away. So it's been helpful. But I, to be honest, I keep things pretty close. How have you dealt with rejection? Uh, I throw stuff. <laughs> uh, 
No, I, you know, I, it's actually, it's weird to say, I honestly, I, and I've had a lot of it. I, I've, I never have let it uh, get to me. I mean, to be honest, I mean, I certainly have had even recently, you know, with the, you know, with the, a project and I was, you know, I could be upset for an hour, but it's weird. I, I just, I, I, you know, I, I, things are okay. So there's worse things than not getting a story published. And what is your favorite word? My favorite word? You're now you're stumping me. My favorite word is Faulkner talks about in, um, I think it's in Sound of the Fury. He says they endured, they endured. And that phrase has always stayed with me. And I kind of use it when I'm character, my characters, I try and have them endure. So I think maybe it sounds negative, but it, it, it doesn't have a negative connotation to me. So endure. All right. Well, thank you so much. That was a hard one. Yeah. I really appreciate the time that you spent with me today. And thank you so much for being here. The audience too. Thanks, Mrs. Always, you know, can't tell you. I mean, you make me think about stuff I never think about. So thank you. That was an interview I recorded live September 29th, 2021 with Peter Orner at Aspen Words, Autumn Words, Writers Conference and Literary Festival. If you like today's show with Peter, author of Maggie Brown and others, check out my two previous interviews with Peter Orner on his short story collection, Last Car Over the Sagamore Bridge, and his essay collection, Am I Alone Here? You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 315 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping the show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Rebecca Solnit, Evie Wild, EJ Levy, and Charlotte Wood. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.